everybody. Welcome back to the Enneagram Journey. A common question that Suzanne and the podcast get is, are there any two numbers or any two triads or types that couldn't be in relationship together or shouldn't be in relationship together? And the answer is always the same. Everyone, when they're healthy, is can be in a good relationship. So the answer is kind of no. So I think today's episode is a great example because we have Ben and Becky Hensley on the podcast and they're both aggressive numbers. Ben is an eight and Becky is a three and they talk a lot about their relationship and they do a good job of articulating the differences between eights and threes. A lot of people see they are similar but a lot of people have a hard time differentiating the two. Part of this episode that really stood out for me is the story when they go down to the border to visit the kids and Ben's part of the story. I think it's a phenomenal example of showing how eights can be passionate and yet unemotional and there's a big difference there. And then also it really highlights every other aspect of being an eight, how they're dominant doing, how they're a part of the anger or gut triad and how they're repressed feeling. We hope you enjoy the show, and we hope that we see you at an upcoming workshop. My guests today are Ben and Becky Hensley. And interestingly enough, for those of you who listen to the podcast a lot, I'm right now in the room with a three and a seven and an eight. So I'm feeling um, uh, excited (laughs) and maybe a little intimidated, maybe a little. (laughs) Um, so I thought what I would do, since everybody knows Joel and me, is I would have the two of you introduce each other. Um, so we'll start with how long you've been married, and then, uh, Becky, why don't you introduce Ben first so you can pattern for him how to do this appropriately. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> so we have been married for three and a half years now. Ben is an eight on the Enneagram, and, uh, What was really interesting for us, I think, is that we actually first uh, went to a Know Your Number session, like, what, three, four months into our marriage. He he went kicking and screaming a little bit, um, not knowing all the details of what this thing was, but in the first moment we walked in the door, was really captivated by it. Might have something to do with the fact that you start out with eights. Um, (laughs) Yeah. This must be good because I'm first. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, it has been really formational and foundational in our marriage together. And so Ben brings a lot of energy to everything he does. He is the associate pastor of worship and discipleship at Oaklawn United Methodist Church. Um, He wears a lot of hats there and is always incredibly passionate about uh, the ministry that he does. And in our marriage, he, he and I uh, just, we laugh a lot together. We uh, share a lot of common um, beliefs. We're both really passionate about justice issues. And so um, those are the ways that we, I think, really show up as our best selves for each other. Um, so I'm really grateful to have that kind of partner and that kind of energy in the areas that I'm really passionate about too. So good job. <laughs> All right. Um, my wife, Becky is a three on the Enneagram and my uh, first memory of her, aside from the fact that I found her incredibly attractive 
was that she was funny. And my goodness, that's important. Uh, so she made me laugh. I thought she was hot. And then, um, <laughs> anyway, all that is to say, uh, she in our marriage is the, um, it's funny. We're both passionate, but she's effectively passionate. I'm kind of just like passionate, but she, uh, her passions, uh, have a way of, of focus and a way of, um, where do I want to go with that? I'll interrupt right there. Yeah. Okay. And here's what I would say. That's a real important distinction between Mm -hmm. threes and eights. And I want to ask if you think that she is more effectively passionate because she's feeling dominant and you're doing dominant. Uh, Well, sure. I I guess to go even deeper than that, it's she, uh, the fact of the matter is like in our relationship, she's the one that knows how the room is reacting. And for me, I walk into the room and it's how am I, um, for me in the room, it's just a body experience, but for her, she's very sensitive to things that I'm just not. And so when, when we're both passionate about an issue, um, sometimes, uh, if we're both together, I'm the one that has to get pinched if I'm saying something or going somewhere or, uh, uh, too loud or any of that kind of thing when Mm -hmm. we're, you know, both as I would say, both as passionate about something, but, uh, you know, aside from that, I, um, I find that, we have some interesting similarities because we're on the aggressive stance together, but we have some deep, deep non-similarities as well. That just makes for a a fascinating marriage for two people who are both as interested in the Enneagram together. Great. So Becky, you're headed to Denver. Yes. Headed to Denver in, (laughs) I would say a few weeks. It may be a little bit longer than that to start a PhD program in religious studies. Okay, I want to talk about, um, for a minute or two, because it's hard to not talk for an hour, Mm -hmm. about justice and about your orientation to justice and how you think individually you're well-suited for that. And you talked about it a little bit already, Ben, how you're well-suited for it, but what the problems are. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes when uh, a couple shares as much as you two do or as much as Joe and I do, there's a possibility of a lack of a, another voice mm. that sees things differently, mm-hmm. and it's necessary. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, I know this question's getting long, but you two can manage that. One of the things that I'm particularly mindful of is that you're both oriented to the future, which kind of means this is going to be great (laughs) and we're going to change the world. Mm -hmm. And by the way, we can change the world without it really affecting us much. Ben would be your (laughs) stance on that. And um, so just start start Mm -hmm. talking into that and then we'll see where that goes. So I think with me, um, this has been something that's been a very formative part of, of my ministry for a long time, this this calling to be about this work of justice in the world. And I mean, in some ways, I'm just, I'm a little bit older than Ben too. And I think that plays in um, having a little bit more ex- rounded experience in life. Um, but I think as a three versus him being an eight is that I actually have to summon the courage in the moment to speak up about something or to do the thing, whatever the thing is that I 
believe needs to be done. And so I have to do some kind of sorting out of that in my mind and my heart. And so I think I just walk into that a little more carefully most of the time. So I think that can be a real benefit in that uh, words might be chosen more carefully, like in the, in the heat of a moment kind of thing. But in terms of, um, you know, sometimes something needs to be said right then and there. Mm -hmm. And so I sometimes find myself feeling regret over not having said or done the thing that needed to be done in the moment. Um, and then I think that's where he as an eight can step into those spaces more easily. Right. Um, because that courage is just there. It's not, it's, he doesn't even have to think about it. Right. Except <laughs> when we're maybe about to get arrested for something. <laughs> There's this weird thing. I'd love to hear your take on you this. Right tell here. the story. There have been at least two moments. One recently. One recently where we were down in McAllen and this uh, bus full of these very young children who we'd been hearing about in the news um, uh, was coming out of one of these detention centers. And, the, and we were there with a group that, w that had already pre-planned this protest. And, um, and as soon as we saw these very tiny little kids on this bus, um, I mean, our hearts just all broke. And so everyone kind of immediately moved toward the bus and people were getting in front of the bus and sitting down and others were, uh, we were putting our hands up on the windows and trying to have some kind of human contact with these kids. And um, then there was the moment where the um, border patrol officers started getting really serious about, you guys are gonna have to move out of the street. Um, and the, the group was LULAC that had planned this protest. And uh, the leaders of the group were saying, okay, get out of the we're, we're not prepared for this. We haven't planned for arrest. We're not doing this today. But there were several of us who just, you know, were, were unmoved in that moment. And and I don't know if I get a look on my face in these moments. I, I don't know what happened because I wasn't even saying anything out loud. Ben was several yards away. But in my mind, I know I was thinking, I may not move. This may be the moment where I get arrested. And, <laughs> and before I know it, he's over there with this look on his face like, no, Becky, no, no. And he suddenly becomes the calm, measured, like, let's think about the whatever. And it's almost like we do this flip-flop. <laughs> and we've seen this. This has happened at least twice. What was the other time? Um, it was a Black Lives Matter march rally. Uh, uh, a back. Yeah. So I have a take on that. Anyway. I've been thinking about that moment. And uh, I think the reason... Really, so that whole th so there's a difference between when a group so LULAC stands for League of United Latin American Citizens, and so it's a it's a political organizing group. There are chapters all over the place, and it's the kind of organization that, in a moment like that, if if they're trying to get arrested, then they were planning to do that. Right. Um, but when a group, and this really the fascinating thing about this is that the group moved as a cohesive unit emotionally. Yeah. To mm -hmm. that point. Yeah. And in that moment. Uh, I think people were willing to get arrested. There was lots of heightened mm. emotion. Yeah. <laughs> and to me, that's the key word, is that in that moment, I wasn't being swept along emotionally. I was still very much situated in what was fundamentally going right or wrong mm. and what fundamentally needed to be done to fix it. Right. And in my, in a, I think for me in the moment, getting arrested wasn't the thing that was going to do anything. Um, though I could also, I, I think I was close to that point because I was just so pissed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 
those kids in that bus, I mean, um, they are easily, they look like they were three, four, five. And um, it was profound to make eye contact with mm -hmm. them and attempt to communicate, I mean, with your body, you have mm -hmm. to communicate here with your body that, that they are loved by someone. Because mm -hmm. right now, the only people they're convinced that love them have been taken from them. Mm -hmm. um, so we're sitting there on the side of this bus trying to do like sign language or something, or we're trying to just like, you know, blow kisses at them, which sure. is A, a posture that's uncomfortable for me as an eight. There you go. But however, uh, it seemed so important to do that for yeah. the sake of the, um, the sanity of these children, much less the spirit of these children, because they look dead in the eye. Like they look dead behind mm -hmm. the eyes. Yeah. It really was this thing where they were kind of just staring at us like, wow. And, uh, and so that was a profound moment for me. Um, and it seemed like it was more significant that they knew from this crowd that the crowd loved them mm -hmm. than for the crowd to be arrested by the bus. And I think that's kind of where I was in that moment. And so it's interesting because I think if I were to, if I were to try and speak to your experience there, it was as if you were being pulled by that emotional mm -hmm. urge to resist for the sake of just, you know, what was happening emotionally in that space. Mm -hmm. um, Not a bigger picture. So yeah. I wonder if it's true that for eights, because they go to five in stress, mm. there is that place that just backs up in highly stressed moments and says, okay, now wait. What, what's what's the, the best thing to do, mm. not what am I capable of doing? So the fascinating thing, I think that is 100% true, particularly for me, because I've, there have been moments in my life where I, I know I was in this high, like car wrecks, right? Car wrecks yes. happen like that. Right. And it, the, everything is immediately up here. You can feel the adrenaline going through your body. You can feel all the things. But I know that there have been times where I've been in a car accident where, uh, for whatever reason, I didn't just freak out. I immediately felt incredibly calm. Yeah. And I found myself going, okay, I need to do this. I need to do this. And I had, I was making a list in my head and I got all the things done and I didn't feel the adrenaline rush until I went to bed that night. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and that kind of happens to me in high stress situations in general, some more high stress than others, but I do find myself processing the, the, uh, the urgent feelings later. And then in the moment, it's not really the case because like there's some sense of, of clarity that pops when it's really intense. It mm -hmm. just pops into focus. So, Thank like goodness. when a fire alarm goes off in the middle. Yeah, of that was, <laughs> I remember that was funny. So yeah, there was a, so thank goodness for that move in stress. <clears throat> yeah. One of the things I've been thinking about lately that we actually have talked about on a couple of podcasts is the fact that orientation of time never changes, mm -hmm. but the past, present or future gets your attention so that you focus on one of the three at different times. Hmm. And because, Becky, you're both dominant and repressed in hmm. feeling, there is a, even though your orientation of time is the future, there's that feeling thing going on that I'm, I'm always kind of thankful that I'm just a two, that I'm not both and, mm -hmm. because I don't know what I would do with situations where I was that torn. Mm. Would you describe it as being torn between what you feel mm -hmm. and what you're going to do? Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good... And I think that um, I don't always know... I mean, in the moment, sometimes you just have to choose what you're going to do. Yeah. 
whatever. Yeah. Right. But then, but then later, um, that's that feeling of being torn, I think can kind of come bit, come back and almost torment me a little bit. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, did I do the right thing right. in the, in the moments? Yeah. So an Enneagram teaching is that if you're both dominant and repressed in feeling, then, then the reality is that either thinking or doing, mm-hmm will take over mm-hmm. after you take in information and one of the two will be dominant for you. Mm-hmm. For you, is it doing? Ooh, I don't know. I Probably a lot of the time, you know, maybe a majority of the time, mm-hmm. but I, I think I think myself mm-hmm. out of situations mm-hmm. or, yeah, a time... A fair amount of time too. Yeah, yeah, which of course you know, as a two, I don't, I, I, I never go to thinking. Like, there's no organic <laughs> move for me to the five, six, seven triad. Mm-hmm. So, I, if I'm not thinking about thinking, then I'm not likely to think, <laughs> which is really problematic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What do you think is your best gift collectively, and what do you think is your biggest challenge collectively? And I'm particularly mindful of what you have and what you lack. Mm-hmm. Not just in justice situations, because mm-hmm. you've pretty well addressed that, mm-hmm. but in just living your days. Mm-hmm. I, I think a collective gift that we have versus a complementary gift. So I think the collective gift that we have is that both of us have energy. I think in two unique ways, mm-hmm. but both of us have energy and, uh, and both of us are, are um, what I would say, people who, A, when we say we're going to do something, we do it, and two, we just get things done. And so that's really, I think, useful mm-hmm. as you know, being in a couple. Sure. You know, when, we, when we set our minds to something, we do it. Um, where we don't, I mean, there are things we don't do. Sometimes mm-hmm. we just really don't clean when we should. But both of us, at least together, seem to not clean, or I get corrected, and I just clean the supposed stuff I'm supposed to clean, or whatever. But I think more, more, more generally than that is uh, we show up as yeah, a couple. There you go. Um, to not just I would say you know justice things, but we show up for our friends. We show up, um, and and we show up in ways that uh, I would say we're not showing up for ourselves. I think both of us show up for the sake of someone else if we need to, or mm. or. You know, we, we show up to the, the the callings that we have in our life and our jobs, and we show up for each other mm-hmm. so that we can support each other. Um, and, I mean, you know, the Enneagram is a double-edged sword in that way because there are some things where we struggle to show up together with. And a lot of that has to go around with our both our perception of our own feelings but a perception of each other's feelings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something we're currently having a lot of conversations about. Is that why you're using the word perception? Um, well, I, I want to use the word perception because I think that there, there are two dimensions to the, at least for me, there are two dimensions to how I repress feelings. There's, yeah. there's a way by which I repress my own perception of my feelings yeah. versus my ability to see and perceive feelings in others. Got it. And I think those are two separate things. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. I think, uh, for me, the, uh, the first word that came to mind was energy too, but I think, I'd even go further to say that we're both driven mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. And as I think sometimes even about like previous relationships I've been in, that there that's that's a real attraction thing for me. I'm I'm attracted to somebody 
who, like me, is driven Likewise. in life. And I mean, obviously, that has to do with future orientation and for me being a three with goals and success sure. and blah, 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 blah. But um, it, it that just feels like there's kind of always this energy of, of moving. And as long as we are moving at least somewhat together, that that feels uh, safe. Honestly, interesting. That's yeah. very interesting. Yeah, and, and exciting. Safety and moving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. In that aggressive space. So, mm-hmm. let, let, well, this may be our last opportunity to talk about what I'm about to bring up. Mm-hmm. Um, between now and um, this time tomorrow, mm-hmm. you guys will know whether or not Ben, you have a job that uh, makes picking up. And moving to Denver for Becky to go to school, a little more enticing, perhaps, <laughs> for both of you. Mm-hmm. So what I'd like to take you back to that I find to be uh, both interesting and admirable in the two of you is that, so you're doing life and you both have jobs and Becky, you're working in the Conference for the United Methodist Church and um, then you move into ministry in a church and Ben, you're, um, in ministry in a church. And then you decide you're going to go to seminary mm-hmm. collectively, I suppose, but I'm sure it was your decision. Mm-hmm. And now y'all are moving to Denver mm-hmm. and you've got a spot and a place and a thing to do mm-hmm. for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. And you have a potential spot in a place <laughs> in a foreseeable future. <laughs> so is that uh, anxiety-producing in any way <laughs> other than financial? I know that, that financially that's tricky, but is there um, a, a thing of, well, what am I going to do? No. Darn, I, now I feel <laughs> terrible. <laughs> Every well, time Joe and I got moved in the United Methodist Church <laughs> to God knows where, I, I would say pretty early on, well, what am I going to do? Well, interest. I mean, well, go ahead. And one of, so one of my favorite, um, one of the favorite things I sort of, you know, learned from one of the mentors that I have, he's a, he's a music minister. He's also a professor and a chair of a music department at a college. His name's Mark Foster. And he referred me to this notion of a vocation. So I think that there's this kind of common narrative in sort of when you talk about vocation and ordained ministry that God called you to this specific place. And for me, one of the things I love that he told me is like, God doesn't call you to a specific place. Wherever you are, God is calling you to, to, to live into and do something that's there. So um, if we're going to Denver, because Becky feels called to uh, uh, you know, pursue a PhD so that she can teach, then there are things that God needs me to do in Denver. So, okay, I just have to find out what that is exactly and, and make sure that we can make it happen. Um, so you get, I hope, that that wouldn't be quite that easy for somebody in the dependent or the withdrawing stance. Right. I think I'm lucky because of the married, the relationship that I have with Becky as well. I mean, there's, there's a stability that I don't think she realizes and a sense of safety that she gives me in terms of feeling like it's possible to even make it happen. Because to me, I can see all of the, uh, 
the pitfalls or all of the things that I have to somehow get past. And, and I will, and a lot of it has to do with money, but also it just has to do with finding the job. But she has this way of living the, her life where finding a job will be easy, but I'm a millennial and I lived through 2008 <laughs> while I was in college and watched all semblance of job security disappear from our culture today. And so to me, I, I've grown up with this sense and I've gone into the job or career field with this sense of like, there's no such thing as job security. So that's something where I can actually rely on Becky's amazing sort of um, banal kind of confidence about whether or not I'm going to find a job. It's like, okay, well, if she says I can do it, then I can just find the job. It's not, it's, it's not the anxiety over what I'm going to do. It's whether or not I'm going to be able to get it done. <laughs> that's fascinating to me. At least in this, and I think, I think that's just specific to the situation that we're in. I don't know if that's... All right, well, let's talk about whether or not you think that's... More, uh, that's a more accessible place for you to stand because you're a millennial or because you're an eight. In terms of the lack of confidence, or what do you mean? No, in terms of the confidence. It's like we're going and there's going to be a job. And well, again, I think she's the one that allows me to sort of say, okay, I guess, because as a millennial, I'm not confident that there is a job. Right. And so, um, so, so could I say that you're confident in the call? Yeah. So here's what I think, and this is so out there and it may be so wrong and it may be so risky that it gets cut. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. I think what baby boomers had a confidence in is groups. And I think millennials have a confidence in themselves as individuals. I can see that. And as a baby boomer who was, I was big time involved in civil rights movement. And I've, I've done my thing. Mm -hmm. I've done my Mm -hmm. sit in, in the president's office at SMU. Like I've done my stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. But always with a group. Yeah. Always with a group. And millennials to me seem to be able to kind of do their thing as an individual, which I think for two aggressive numbers would be a double gift and a double bind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that. Um, I don't want to talk too much, but I do want to say, and then I'm going to stop um, because I feel like I've talked a lot, but that um, I think that both are wrong if they're exclusively going to go toward the power of the individual or the power. It's both power of the group and the power. It's the power of the individual as a part of a group. There you go. I mean, I think that's very, you know, I could translate that over to church talk if I wanted to. Um, uh, You can't do everything as an individual, and if you only do things as an individual, you're isolating yourself, and you're actually doing psychological and emotional harm to yourself. But if you are only a part of a group, then you're surrendering your ability to have your own agency, if that's all it is. So it has to be both. Um, Are you worried about anything? Oh, my God. So it's interesting to hear him talk so calmly about where he is and that he gets all this confidence from me, because I'm being driven crazy right now by not being able to plan like what's coming in, you know, very short weeks. And I've got my little like list of things to do on my phone that I take great pleasure and joy in like deleting as they get done. And there's stuff that's just sitting there, um, like finding an apartment and, you know, how are we going to move all of our stuff and how much is it going to cost? And, Um, so there is, uh, there's this worry and stress right now in this kind of liminal space that we're in until we get all these things straightened out. Um, but I, I think the, 
the deeper confidence. I think I love the way you put it. Confidence in the call, like a deeper confidence in, in what we're ultimately doing. Um, like I can always sort of come back to that and knowing that, I mean, I had a good friend of mine that reminded me, um, the other day that, you know, even if this doesn't work out exactly as we would hope it would right now. And, and even if maybe Ben has to stay in Dallas a little bit longer and I got to go by myself for a little bit, um, that I'm doing what I really feel called to do. Sure. And that that never is necessarily easy. Um, but that's part of how, you know, you're doing the right thing. And, and I know that like deep in my bones, like deep in my soul, that's, that's my, you know, way of moving through life too. Um, it's good to have good friends to remind you of that sure. sometimes when you're in the like, oh. uh, so I, I just, the, the confidence in our relationship, the confidence in that saying yes to what it is, what, you know, you often say the front phrase, what is mine to do sure. in the world and, um, really trying to live into that. I just have a deep faith and belief and really always have, um, that it's going to work out. Yeah. And so that keeps me grounded even when like on the day to day, my hair is falling out in the shower because I just really want to be able to plan, to figure out where <laughs> to plan. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, yeah, me too. And the, to mark stuff off my list. So the Enneagram specific <laughs> thing about this is that I can't tell. I can't tell that you're stressed. I can't tell that you're um, when you clean out so the drain. intensely worried. Right. Right. I, I mean, sure, I do clean out the, the drain a lot from your hair, but like to me, that that doesn't register on an emotional level. Uh, and so, it's. I just think that's just an interesting aside as to how sometimes our relation can work, our relationship can work is that there are times where as, as a married couple, maybe I've done something that was hurtful or just stupid or like whatever that I'm not aware of. And I won't be aware of until she chooses to let me know that okay. she perceived it that way. And I think that's so much of a three thing and a challenge for me as an eight. Absolutely. That's so much of an eight thing too. He, yes. <laughs> <laughs> to just not know. It's like, I just yes. didn't know. I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And I think people really struggle to believe that eights had no idea. Mm. When I was a kid, mm-hmm. um, my mom was dating a guy, and he was a rock climber. And they used to, this is back in the day, and they used to take me on these like rock climbing trips. And he had a friend, and they're all like kind of rugged and funny. And they gave me a nickname, uh, Objective Hazard, which is the thing that you call like a boulder that's falling <laughs> down the cliff. So I'm just the Objective Hazard because I'm just like stumbling over stuff, or I'm kicking rocks yeah. off the cliff, or whatever. So it works. Bull in a china shop for Richard yeah. Rohr's Spirit Animal of the Eight. That stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Ever moving forward, though. <laughs> Ever moving forward. Whether we're tumbling or we're walking. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, what, what would your, individually, one piece of advice be, first of all, to two aggressive numbers that are married? And then after that, I'm going to ask you to somebody who's not an aggressive number, mm. married to an aggressive number. Mm. Well, you actually gave us some advice uh, way back uh, about <laughs> oh, that's right. if, if we ever have children, we better get straight on feelings and be able to communicate feelings or we're going to screw our kids up. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. And, yeah, I still think that's good yeah. advice. <laughs> I'm going to stand on that. It's solid. And I think, we, I think that um, now that we've, we've been married a little longer, we're recognizing that even, you know, within our own relationship. And so I do think that we um, have been 
have been doing some, some deep work around that and, and figuring out the ways for it to be safe for us. Mm -hmm. Um, and so for me, part of that is because as a three, I can, um, take an emotional moment and shut it off and put on the show, put on the face, whatever. Um, and if that happens on Tuesday, um, you know, by Friday, I've maybe moved on to other things or whatever, but we have a, a sort of stop point break in the week, which is Sunday evenings, which is just kind of our, our two person family check-in night. And, and what, what that practice has done for us is it's actually helping me now for the longest time. It was like, well, I know no matter what, if he pissed me off on Tuesday, <laughs> I have to say it on Sunday. Mm -hmm. I can't let it wait all the way till Monday. I can hold on to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he won't know because nope. he's the eight. Nope, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, now what that's helping me do better is because we've been in that practice, like I, I think I am doing a little bit better job of communicating feelings in the moment or closer to the sure. moment, you know? Um, which is helpful because there are times where my, my actions, um, and, you know, kind of a passive aggressive way, he knows he's upset me, but he doesn't know why he doesn't know what he did. Mm -hmm. God, that's the worst. And I don't, and if in the moment I don't want to deal with it, then sure. I don't want to deal with it, but I'm getting better at, at, <laughs> at trying to let him know. And, and we're figuring out what that means in terms of his reaction when mm -hmm. I do share and like, oh, maybe I should have waited till Sunday for that or whatever. <laughs> um, but we really are trying to kind of work through that and figure that out. And, and because, I mean, I do think in some ways there's a that's a <clears throat> gift of the three, too, because sometimes you got to put on the show. Yesterday, Joe was a speaker at a local Methodist church during their summer series for religious education mm -hmm. stuff. And. He was asked to come talk about one of his specialties, which, of course, is spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices. And it's so interesting to me to watch groups of people who haven't been exposed a lot to spiritual disciplines and spiritual practice to kind of fold up like, I, I'm, I'm, I don't have time for this mm -hmm. and I'm doing all right. And I, you know, I don't know what you've brought, but I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I want to just point out for everybody is that you two have a shared spiritual discipline that is a practice that you do on Sunday evenings that is a check-in for you. You do it with regularity. You do it with your whole heart. You come to it open to what it might offer you, which are all characteristics of a spiritual practice. You show up at the same place at the same time, so that's all part of the deal. And you get something from that that is a payoff, sometimes in real time and sometimes later. Mm -hmm. So my little sermonette about that is that if two young, aggressive people in a relationship can mark out some time to do a spiritual practice together, then anybody can. <laughs> <laughs> anybody can, right? Yeah. And I think we have a pushback against things that we don't understand. Mm. So I just want to highlight that as a great spiritual practice. Mm. All right, what you got? So I, I think that the best piece of advice for the couple is that check-in. So what I'll I'll let that be where it is. I think that the thing I want to say to that is it can't you can't relegate the check-in time to be something that is very facile and on the surface, which my God, that's hard not to do um, mm -hmm. because and for the both of us, um, 
the emotional territory that you can get into is so uncomfortable. And I think that uh, for the aggressive numbers, the numbers in the aggressive stance, they have different ways of coping with that. I know for me personally as an eight, I um, sometimes will feel vulnerability as boredom. Uh, and uh, when I'm in an emotional... No, 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 no. Say that one more time. So when I am in an emotionally vulnerable place and I'm there and I'm not necessarily wanting to be there, it, I, I have this sense of feeling bored. And, and I have this sense of like that boredom causes me to want to flee in terror because boredom is the worst. So um, I think that's very interesting as a side note. But what I'm trying to say is that for, for if you're in a relationship with someone who, like you, is emotionally repressed, then you have to dive headfirst into that. You can't... You can't look at your your relationship health and say, well, we're doing our chores on time and together. We're not fighting about something and we have fun because you're not dealing with the thing that needs to get worked on, there you go. which is the emotional landscape of your relationship. What are the ways that you've actually hurt each other's feelings? What are the ways that um, you've, you've brought joy to each other? What are these uncomfortable, squishy things that you need to talk about, especially as that kind of couple? I think... If, if, if the check-in time is the practice, you're not going to do that practice justice if you don't go there with it. And it took us a while. Like, yeah. we mm -hmm. did a lot of surface-level Sunday nights for, yeah. for, a while, for quite a while before we started really realizing, like, this is not necessarily really helpful. I yeah. mean, we can talk about our calendars for the week, and that's great, but... Um, but and I, and I will say this to plug your study guide mm -hmm. with your new book that that was something that for us recently was really helped us go into a deeper level. So I just I think you need to just keep producing even if you're not writing a whole new book. Just we need we need we ran out. We did our six <laughs> weeks and we're like, well, now what are we going to do? I think to one of the strengths of your study guide was that you wrote it for mm -hmm. one thing for sure. It was very good. Um, and I also think that to plug something that you constantly say is that uh, another thing, at least for me as an aggressive number also, was that uh, there was a lot of things I had to confront in therapy that also um, comes into this practice too. Absolutely. And I think that that is, there, there is, um, an, uh, <laughs> to, to, to choose to go to therapy is to admit that you're weak, which is also not <laughs> a natural posture for But you. not boring. Not boring, no, but, <laughs> act, but very unpleasant. I yeah. hate going to therapy. It yeah. is not the thing I like to do. I only do it because I know I need to. And so when I'm there, I'm like, oh, it takes a lot to sort of get me comfortable in that moment. And so, yeah, I, I, if you need therapy, I know why I need therapy. There's some sure. just trauma I have to deal with. But, um, you know, that might be something to also explore. All right. Um, how much... Do you think, and I want you to answer honestly, we, we can edit that out. <laughs> How much do you think the Enneagram has contributed to your Sunday night success? Uh, comprehensively. It really has, because the, the thing for us, particularly for me on the Enneagram, is that there's, I think there's such an importance to have vocabulary Otherwise, you look at your emotions and it's boredom. But if you have the vocabulary, 
especially as an aide, to process the um, things that you hide behind your, you know, bullishness or you hide behind whatever it is that we hide behind sure. as any number on the Enneagram, um, that vocabulary is really helpful because sometimes you need that word in order to, to process what actually happened versus relegating it to a word that actually doesn't describe it. Um, and it also, I think the importance of it being a, a, um, a system that moves and goes somewhere, I, I find the Enneagram to be so much more compelling than Myers-Briggs. A, because every time you take the Myers-Briggs, it changes. But B, Myers-Briggs, uh, it's that importance of, of measuring motivation versus behavior. Mm -hmm. That's so much more useful to me, especially yeah. in a spiritual practice, to know why. Mm -hmm. Sure, there's all kinds of things that I do. Who cares? I mean, introverted, extroverted, whatever. But why? Mm -hmm. The why so is so crucial. Mm -hmm. you yeah. know? And I just can't ever remember what I am on the Myers-Briggs. Like, it just doesn't stick for me. I know. And, I mean, <laughs> yeah. it just doesn't. So I think, I mean, it has been just foundational in that Sunday night time, but also Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. I mean, for me, as a three, um, having a partner who understands that about me and can be the one who I trust, uh, who can, you know, who can call me out of my BS. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I have to tell this story cause this was, this was maybe the first time you really did this in just a very direct way. And it, Oh, it made me mad, but he, <laughs> he was right. Cause I hate it when he is right about something that makes him like more mature than me in the moment. <laughs> So this was, I was really frustrated. I'd been working with a group and I felt like others in the group were not pulling their weight, but I was just pulling all kinds of weight and was having success. And I re remember it clear as day, I was in PetSmart looking for cat food and I'm on the phone with Ben and I'm like, I'm just so annoyed with all these people. Why aren't they doing this? I've done this and this and this and look how much I've done and da, 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 da. nobody's doing their part. And I'm staring at the cat food and he says, wow, your like three is really coming out right now. And I was like, I have to go. I've got to get cat food. <laughs> and I hang up and I get the cat food. I'm like, but he's so right. He was and isn't so it right. so great that you knew what that meant? Yes. You know, yes. one of the things I've said all along is you can say things using Enneagram language mm -hmm. that you could never get away with saying mm -hmm. otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Tell me one thing that would be so great if a non-aggressive number knew about being in a relationship with an aggressive number? Ooh, um, ooh. I think it would be great if a non-aggressive number knew that aggressive numbers do care, um, but that we often are so caught up in that, you know, thing that we're doing, that energy, that, um, moving forward, whatever, but that often that is because we are very, um, passionate, compassionate, that there, that there's feeling and emotion attached to that. Um, but it just, I know that it often feels for others like, there's not a individual connection sure. that you don't care about that person mm -hmm. in that moment or that you're doing these things, um, without concern for them. But, um, but there really is care and concern bound up in that. Good, good, good.
I think it's important if you're a non-aggressive number and you're with a number is, uh, I, I think I get impatient with this. And I think this is perhaps maybe a misuse of at least the Enneagram is that there's just this assumption that you're locked in. All eights are jerks or whatever. And yeah. it's so really just wrong. Um, uh, at least in my own lived experience, I think there's a deep well of emotion that I have. Mm -hmm. um, it's uncomfortable for me, but it's there. Um, and so it's important to sort of recognize complementarity in those moments. So if, if you are, you know, if you're a number that leads with thinking, but not with doing, then you have an opportunity to complement the person you're with. Sure. And, mm -hmm. um, and so, and, and so what you need to do in that relationship is that you need to invite them to help bring out the thing in you that is repressed and they need to invite you to bring out the thing in them that is repressed. Mm -hmm. Um, the nice thing about Becky being a three is that while she is repressed in feeling, she's also dominant in feeling. Sure. So she does have, um, a, a sense of feeling that I can, um, I can, uh, see and I can, and, um, I don't want to use the word use, but that is, is a revelatory for me and, and is a place of reference for me that allows me to, to live into the feeling and to the emotion that I have mm -hmm. and to connect that emotion with, with a, the reason why it's repressed, but also to connect that emotion to what I'm doing so that I can journey toward that completeness that we're all journeying toward. Um, and that the Enneagram measures well. So, um, that's my advice is that there, it, it, there, none of the numbers are caricatures. And if that's where you stop, then mm -hmm. you need to keep doing that work. There a. you go. Good. But B that if, if, if you are in a relationship with someone who leads with doing and has repressed their feeling, then, um, there is such an opportunity and that they need it for their, their spirituality, their, their souls. They need help. Um, I would say in, in recognizing and drawing out of them the deep, um, wells of emotion that they have not to just always be out because that's not the point. Sure. It's balance is sure. the point. Sure. So let me just say this. You two can't go anywhere in the planet without taking a little piece of my heart with you. Huh. And I uh, trust that we'll do this again, regardless of where you are. I'm mm -hmm. probably going to be right here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Godspeed. I have Thank lots you. of hope for the world because the two of you are you. Thanks. The Enneagram Journey podcast is produced by Life in the Trinity Ministry. Music is provided by Solvay Lighthouse. Professional photography is courtesy of Courtney Perry. We invite you to visit theenneagramjourney.org for more information, and we welcome your questions and comments. Thank you for being with us today.